So, as the last of our little ones are heading out, we encourage you to open up your Bibles to the uh, book of Mark. We're going to be spending some time in Mark today. I know everybody's sitting there saying, wow, Mark, awesome, right? Because everybody loves Mark, right, Nate? Yes, because Mark is fantastic. I tell you, you know, um, every congregation has a different flavor and feel, and in the course of ministering to a variety of different people over the years, Sandy and I have come to enjoy the flavors in the different congregations that we've been in. And this particular congregation is unique. And we've got a lot of you guys out here that are doers, which I think is fantastic. Uh, one time we were, we were ministering to a church that was like mostly officers and in the military. And Tom, we know what officers are good at doing, right? Telling other people how to do nothing, right? Telling, telling people how to do stuff or how they should be done, but then not actually doing it, right? Because they always wait for somebody else to get it done. Right, so, so I love having the fact that we have a congregation of doers. I look out in this congregation, and I see, I see people out here that know how to get things done. And that's fantastic. When it, when it comes to having a congregation that knows how to engage and take the will of God and make it come to fruition and reality, and not some theoretical uh, whatever, we're talking a concrete, let's see it, how it, see it, envision it, and then do it, right? That's the kind of people you guys are. And so everybody here ought to love the book of Mark. Because the book of Mark is like, I've always called it like the every man's gospel. It is the common man's gospel. It's the gospel that was written for us. It was the gospel that was written so that we could take it and move with it. It was the nuts and bolts, the hammer and the, the chisel of the, of, of, of the church as far as the gospels go. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't play around in, in serious, complex theology unless you really want to dive deep, deep into Mark. Then you can see it because the Holy Spirit is still the author of this thing. But he used Mark's practical um, down-to-earthness um, fed to him by, by, the, by, by Peter to give us a gospel of the life of Christ that gives us an idea of his humanity. See, if you want to read a good gospel that gives you a good understanding of who Jesus was as the divine man come to give salvation to mankind, John is the greatest book you can read. But the next book you need to read after that is Mark because it will give you not just the divine man perspective but the man's man perspective. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today as we look at this. We'll be starting off in Mark 4, and then we're going to move backwards to Mark 2, and then we're going to finish up in Mark 1. Um, so we're going to stay mostly in Mark today. Um, and so we've been on this theme called the, the Mystery of God's Plan Unveiled, Mysteries Unveiled. And so today's sermon title, I'm, I'm titling The Many Faces of Jesus. I know some of you are like, well, that's a weird title. Yeah, it is. But go with it. You'll, you'll get it, hopefully, if all goes well. Um, and so we're, we're on this idea that, that the mystery of God's plan, God's plan to wrest control of the universe from the enemy's hands and place it back where he wanted it originally in the, man, in the hands of us, mankind, his imagers in this world. His goal here is to restore us back to that Edenic vision that he had when Adam and Eve were first new on the earth, where he said, go into the earth, multiply and subdue the earth. What he's trying to say is make the earth outside the Garden of Eden like the inside of the Garden of Eden. And the garden was where God met Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and walked with them. The garden was where God lived and dwelt. Garden was synonymous for the temple, for the house. We want to make this city of Kenai, to make it back practical, we want to make this city of Kenai as warm and as loving and as filled with God's mercy and grace as it's in this building, right? 
I mean, look around us. We've got people in this congregation that come from such a variety of backgrounds, not just plumbers and lawyers and doctors and such. We're talking about, we have people in this congregation that were former gang members. We have people in this congregation that, were, lived, that lived a life of heathenness well beyond anything you can write, you can imagine. But yet they come in here knowing that they have received the, 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 the forgiveness of God, knowing that they have received his mercy in such a way that they can sit side by side with each and every one of us. And we don't look at them and we don't call him Tom the sinner. We look at him as Tom, the born again, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, sinner saved from a fallen world, child of the living God. And that's the kind of Tom I can sit side by side with because I know that no matter what happens, Tom's got my back. Because Tom knows what it means to be on the other side of the fence. See, Scripture tells us never to, be, never to be forgetful of where we come from. Because as soon as we forget the sinner that we used to be, then we lose the relevance to the sinner of today that we're trying to reach. Period. So this is what this is all about, this connection to the theme. And I'm telling you now, the enemy, if the enemy knew that dying on the cross was God's plan all along to save humanity... I guarantee you the enemy never would have, never, never in a million years, the, the enemy would have given Jesus the most comfortable life he could possibly imagine. I mean, he, he would have people bringing him slippers in bed. And I mean, we would, he would never have experienced the turmoil. But see, the problem is, is that God didn't want the enemy to know. So the entire Old Testament is a veiled plan that gives us little snippets from this prophet and this prophet and this teacher and finally comes to fruition in the essence of who Jesus Christ was. So when he showed up on the scene, he came for a purpose. And here's that purpose, okay? See, when mankind fell and the enemy rose in prominence, and we as humankind through Adam, our Adam, our representative, when he chose to sin the way he did and disobey God, he put himself outside the ability to be able to be the authority of this world. And that's where the enemy stepped in. And the enemy has held authority of this world for a long time. Paul talks about this. Other apostles talk about it. The prince and the power of the air, the, the enemy of this present age. We're talking about the people that, the rulers and powers and principalities. This is all echoed in the New Testament. These are the people that Jesus came to counteract. And the only way to do that was to in bodily form invade the enemy's territory. You know, I'm, I'm not a military person per se, but I am the father of several. I am the husband of one. I am the son of a bunch, stretching back five generations. I understand the military mindset pretty well. And the idea that the only way you're going to affect change in a place is to put boots on the ground. And that's just the way it is. Jesus knew this. The only way that he was going to affect change in the world was to invade the enemy's kingdom. And he went in the form of Jesus Christ to do that. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today. Now I want you to think about this as, you, as you're sort of dwelling on everything that I've said and, and you're sort of like percolating, how does this apply to where we're going to go? And I want you to think about this. The, I told you the many faces of Jesus. So I want you to think of this great, uh, somebody you've, you've heard over the years, it's like the greatest encourager you've ever heard. Or I mean the greatest speaker you ever heard. Somebody that, that stands up there like a Tony Robbins kind of dude that just stands there and the moment he starts speaking, you're enraptured. Like every time I get up here and speak, right? So he's focused, 
Yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to say that. But, you know, some, some great orator of the past, somebody who you can't get enough of. I don't know about you guys, but I can sit and listen to Billy Graham's sermon all, sermons all day, every day. I love his voice and his cadence and his ability to be able to make the, the complex practical. I love listening to some of these other great preachers, and I can listen to them for hours and hours and hours because I just enjoy their voice. It just, it just it reaches into my soul. Now, now I want you to th- have that in your mind. Now, I want you to think about some great encourager you've seen, some coach beyond coaches, somebody that was able to draw out the very best in persons, you know, somebody that was able to, to reach into their soul and just say, okay, we're going to take this, this little plan that we have and we're going to make it happen. Somebody like a, like, a, like a Patton or somebody like that, you know, it's somebody that can really just sort of get you moving. Not always is that image in your mind the same person, right? Now, you got two different images there. Now, the third image I want you to think in your mind is, is some very strong guy, you know, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of figure, you know? Women, like some of you are thinking, like the biggest, most powerful person you know, ladies, like, like your husband, you know? Guys, I've got your back. I'm thinking of you, you know? Think of that big, strong, muscular dude, right, that's, that's able to rescue and protect, that's able to guide and strengthen, you know? Now, they don't all, these images that we have, they don't always marry up in the same person, do they? Very infrequently do we have one individual that embodies all those things. Well, the neat thing is, is that we do have that in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was the greatest teacher and speaker that we've ever known. He was able to move a crowd from the moment that they saw it to the conviction of sin all the way to the end where, where they're able to repent. He was the great encourager. He was able to take a group of 12 unrelated dudes and minister to them in three years and take them to the point where they became a force to be recognized in the world. Because of those 12 guys' obedience, we now have a movement that spans over the entire earth. The Christianity is the single largest religion on the place today, the earth. We have, we have 4.3 billion adherents worldwide. Now, there is other faiths that are creeping up rather rapidly. But right now, we are taking the message where it needs to go. Have we covered the whole planet? No. Has every tribe, nation, and tongue heard? No. Do we still have a lot of work to go? Yes. Is this finally the place that we can say that we've accomplished the the mission? No. But we have made a good start of it, and it started with 12 guys. And then we look at that whole great, powerful leader, the athlete of athlete, the man of man, man of men, men of men? I don't know, something like that. Definitely Jesus. And you see that often enough, the strength of character to stand boldly and go forward. So we're talking about these three faces, this idea that Jesus operated in and and functioned in three different phases as prophet, priest, and king. And so those would be the many faces, if you will, the three faces of Jesus. We see that started in in chapter 4 in Mark. We're going to be looking at his first face, if you will, that face of the prophet. On verse 35 in chapter 4, we see this scene that, that unfolds. And I'll read it to you, and then we'll talk about it. It says, starts in verse 35, chapter 4, book of Mark. It says, On that day, when the evening came, he said to them, Jesus said to them, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with, um, took him along with, uh, took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the, in the stern of the ship, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not even care that we are dying here? And he said, he got up and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became in 
uh, perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became much afraid. And he said and said to one another, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, this is the fourth miracle story the gospel's teaching, uh, the, 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 gospel, the gospel of Mark talks about. This is the first time that Jesus' name as teacher emerges. So it's the first time the apostles in the gospel of Mark call him teacher. It's not the word rab- rabbi that they use oftentimes. This is a teacher, uh, that it's a word teacher, uh, 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 I'm not, I can't pronounce it, it starts with a D. Um, but it's, it's, the, it's the word that brings out the idea that he is the educator, the teacher, the one that he does this. He uses it another 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. And notice how it says here, Jesus says to him, let us go on over to the other side. I love that expression. And you know, it's funny, I've, I've read commentaries about this all week and actually last week too, and um, trying to understand why that phrase was in there. Let's go on over to the other side. And you know, nobody can tell me why. None of, the, none of the theologians understand why he had to go to the other side of the river. There's no indication in the Gospels anywhere other than reading there, that there was a reason for this. It was just Jesus wanted to do it. And I often wonder, if we're looking at this, if, is Jesus asking us to go over to the other side, right? I mean, he, was, he had a big crowd there. He could have stayed right where he was on the shore. He was already meeting the needs of the people at that moment. There was no need to go to the other side. But it got me thinking about something. There's a, there's a, a principle in leadership and um, in movements of, of, of people. And the idea is, is that if we are meeting and we're doing in a certain spot, the organization that we are right now, right today, everything that has gone past us that leads to this moment has brought us here, right? You understand? You're following me? Everything we've done in the past has brought us to where we are today. So that means that our organization, First Baptist Kenai, is uniquely skilled at creating who we are today. Are you following me? So everything that we are doing up to this point, that's what we've created. Now, we can stay in this lane, right? We can stay in this spot for a long time. We can, spend, we can live in this row. And there are churches that get to this spot and they just, they just plant themselves and they stay because they're comfortable and they, and they want to be there. But I think sometimes God is telling us that we need to get out of the comfort zone, right? Get out of where we find ourselves, where, we, where we're happy, and move over maybe to the other side where maybe the crowds aren't as big. Maybe there isn't as many people blazing a trail. Maybe we're going to have to use machetes. Machetes. Because that's important sometimes, a clear path. Wherever, the, wherever God has taken us, we, be, we need to be willing to go. Now, Jesus knew he was leading them into a storm. They didn't know it. But here we see something really interesting. See, Jesus... Jesus was leading them to a place where he could teach them a very profound thing. In verse 37, it says, there arose a fierce gale. And this fierce gale was something that was so powerful, which is common on that lake, but it was so fierce that they felt that they were going to die. And notice verse 38. It says that Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat. The New American Standard says cushioned. Really, it wasn't a cushion like you think. It was more like a wooden board, a seat. It was not very comfortable. I don't know how Jesus could sleep in such confines, but Sandy tells me that when she was in the army, uh, she could <laughs> she could sleep on the firing line on a rucksack because they were so tired, and she didn't even have headphones on. She just passed right out. So I guess people would fall asleep anywhere, um, given a sense of time. And I know there are a lot of people who like to over-spiritualize this section. Oh, Jesus was giving them a, a, a word picture of Jonah. Or, or Jesus was trying to bring out the idea of Moses. 
or Jesus wanted to do this. And I'm thinking to myself, here's an idea. Maybe Jesus was just hired. Maybe he was human. Maybe he was completely man and completely God at the same time. And maybe he just preached his heart out to a few thousand people and he was slap dang tired. I like that answer because that's the Jesus I follow. A Jesus that understands exactly what I go through, exactly what you go through at the end of a long day. And he just wanted to curl up and take a nap. Give him credit for it. He knew it was happening. He knew it was coming because he's still God, right? And so he's sitting there, and look what it says in verse 39. He says, and he got up and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea. That's such a powerful phrase. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, right? That's like all encapsulated into like one word. Really? So, so we have like 12 words to say one word in the Greek. He basically stood up and said one word. One word. That one word simply means to be muzzled. To be silent. He told the wind, shut up. I'm trying to sleep here. Right? That's what he said. I find that amazing that his power was so complete, he was able to do that, to go from that transition of I'm asleep, I'm tired, and jump up to be able to say, be quiet. And the waves instantly obeyed him. You know, if it, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful if you think about it. Book of Psalms, if you want to write this down, we're not going to turn there, but in Psalms chapter 107, verses 29 and 30, you see that the psalmist was trying to bring out that same intensity. When he stood up there and acting as his, as, as his role of prophet, he was, for, he was telling the world and convicting the universe of his grandness. And he used that power in that office, and he did something that no prophet before him had the power to do. Moses may have, through the power of God, split the Red Sea, Elijah did some splitting and some seas his own self. There were some chariots of fire involved. There were some axe heads that floated up from the ground. There was a lot of things that happened, but none of the prophets had ever been able to take an entire ocean, except maybe Jonah, and say, be quiet. We're talking here. And have it listen so completely and so quickly. And this is what God was trying to say in that role of prophet. He was trying to bring out the idea that he was the one that we should listen to. And look what verse 40 says. He turns to his apostles, and, he, and here's Jesus, never, never, never one to let an object lesson go, right? He was like the ultimate children's pastor, because that's who his disciples were, really, children in many ways. And so he was the ultimate children's pastor as he used this object lesson to be able to bring forth the message of, you need to listen to me and trust in me, right? And he says, why are you afraid? The word in Greek there is delios, and it's not your normal word of fear, it's not like it's the, it's the fall on the ground and tremble and awe and fear. That word is phobos. He uses that in the next verse. This word is diemos. And what it literally means is, why are you such a timid, cowardly little creature? He turned to Peter and the guys and he said, you're cowards. Wow. That's some harsh language. Tom, would you appreciate Jesus calling you a coward? I think if any man outside this building called you a coward at the wrong moment, they might find that that would not be the case. Am I correct? Right, Because men, we tend to, that, that hits us in the core where we live, right? Because no man wants to be called a coward. No man wants to be called a coward. We want to be strong, right? We want to be able. And so when, when Jesus used this word, it smacked him right in the face. Why do you still have no faith? 
Why are you timid little mice cowering and worrying about something so small? And, and that's when verse 41 came on the scene, right? Verse 41 comes on the scene, and that's the word he says. They said they became very much afraid. That word there is phobos. That's a fear on a much larger magnitude. This is a fear that's so great, it's actually even greater than a fear of death. They're no longer afraid of just having, uh, having their life snuffed out in the bottom of a boat. They're now having this fear that the creator of the universe has just come among them, and they don't know how to handle this. It was that kind of awe and shock and fear that suddenly has hit them, Right? And they don't know what they're going to do. This is part one of Jesus' plan to reveal himself. Now, I know we're going to go backwards in time as we go from chapter 4 to chapter 1 in the book of Mark. But I want, to, I want you guys to put this in context of what Jesus is trying to do. You have to understand, remember I said that Jesus is invading into the enemy strongholds? Well, there's many ways to invade, right? And I know we've got Marines in the congregation. I'm not trying to pick on my Marine friends. But, you know, it's, it's your Marines, right? It's like you're ripe for being picked on. So I love you. I really do. So when Marines do something, they're, and they'll be the first one to tell you, they're mission-oriented. They see a goal and they go for it. And nothing, heaven help anything, gets in the way of a Marine on mission. Because you're going to get rolled over. That's the way Marines work, right? Marines are best when they're in a fire team. And, the be- and they're at the beaches. And the, that, that front of the boat slams down. And somebody in the back says, Go! And he stays there because he's an officer, right? And then all the other Marines go, ah, you know, and they just run. That's what Marines do best. That's one way to invade, right? But there's another way to invade, and this is the way that Jesus is doing it. When I was overseas, I had the opportunity to minister to a group of men. They were special forces guys. These guys were the real kind of deal. These are the, the heart takers and life takers or whatever they are. They were the kind of guys that you didn't want to mess with. They were also the guys who were kind of scary. because. And I always knew when these guys were going to go on mission because you look at Tom and you see, you see clean cut Tom, right? I like Nate's clean cut too. That's really neat. So Tom is clean cut. He's got mostly high and tight today. He's doing really good. He's very marine bearing. He carries it, right? He's walking. He, we know who he is. Well, when, when these guys are getting ready to go on mission, they look more like Fred. I love you, Fred. Picking on you, really. <laughs> See, you wouldn't think Fred's in the military, right? But this is how these guys are. They let things go a little bit. They start growing the beard. They start getting their hair out. And before they actually hit the ground, they look more like the people they're going to be inserting themselves into than they did the Army or the Marine or the Air Force they started off. And they do that for a reason, because they have to infiltrate, because that's the other way that we invade, right? We do it on the down low. We do it on the sneak side. We come into it, and we say, I'm just one of you guys. Hey, how's America doing? You know? And they start to change the mindset of the group they're working with. And this is what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to invade in such a way that he can do this. But at the same time, he was letting the enemy know who's really in charge, and that's him. Now, we're going to have some applications in this. We're going to have three different applications. We're going to draw this. The first application that we need to ask ourselves in this first section in chapter 4 of the book of Mark is this. How are you going to respond? How do we respond to the words of Jesus? Are we going to be like a stupid storm that has no mind or brain of its own but was willing to obey? Or are we not? Are we willing to obey the words of Jesus? That's the first application we can pull out of this. Now let's turn over to chapter 2 in the book of Mark. We're going to see a little bit more of this, uh, of this as Jesus is now going to be fulfilling the role of that priestly side of himself, the kind of, uh, the kind of role that's going to draw in more of that faith and the idea that, that Mark wants to bring out of, of Jesus acting in that priestly way. Now you see in Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1, there's some things that are happening. It says, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. 
right? So Jesus is at home. He's hanging out. And I know some of you say, well, Jesus didn't have a home. That must have been Peter's home. Everybody says that. Every commentary I've read, because Jesus says later on that, you know, you want to follow me, you're doing good, but you have to remember the Son of Man has no place to lay his head and blah, 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 blah. So we just assume that Jesus didn't have a house, right? Well, okay, let me just read this again. And they heard that he was at home. Kind of seems like he had a home there, right? He had a house. I don't know anything more about it, but a couple of verses in the New Testament do say that he had a house in Capernaum. So take it for what you will. Jesus was at home. He was, had his apostles together. This is the beginning of his ministry. He is gathering together his dudes, and then at the same time, other people found out he was there. He was already starting to rise in popularity among the people, and he was coming forward, and, 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 and people wanted to know a little more about him. And it said in verse 2, And many were gathered together so that there was no, there was no lo- longer room in the house, and not even near the door. And as he was speaking the word to them, and you can underline that word, word, because it's a powerful one. We won't have time to really look into it, but but I, to tell you, anytime you see the word, Jesus is speaking the word, it's a powerful thing. And he came to them bringing to him a paralytic that were carried by four men. We know this story. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins, little child, your sins are forgiven. Now we're going to read that a little bit further, but I just want to stop for a second to see what's happening here. Because there's some things that are going on that you need to really see under on the undercurrent. See, you have to remember, Mark is at every man's gospel. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't add things that don't belong. Every word is calculated. Every word is there for a punch. Every one is a nail that's being driven into the casket of the enemy that's about to die when he goes to the cross, right? And so we are, we are coming into this, and Jesus is, is trying to bring out this understanding of who he is, and Mark is giving a good picture of this. And you see this. There's a few words that, that you're going to see that crop up again and again in Mark's gospels. The first word, and you've got to write this down in Greek, is, is, is the word for faith. It's the word that's used throughout the New Testament. The word is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. It just simply means in Greek a faith that's tried and tested and unwavering. It's the kind of faith when you're hanging on the side of a cliff and you're holding on with your fingers and you have faith that either your fingers or the rock are going to hold firm, right? You have that kind of faith, the kind of faith that will allow you to try to reach up and grab the other ledge so you can be able to move forward. It's that kind of all-encompassing faith that allows you to be who you want to be. The other word you're going to see that's in the gospel of Mark over and over and over again is the word immediately. It's the idea that Jesus is doing this and then immediately this happens. We saw that with the the way that the winds died down and there was an immediacy there. That word in Greek is ethos and we see this word often used. So those two words are like Mark's favorite words. He uses it over and over again in his gospel because he wants to give the understanding and the idea of the immediacy of the faith that God is bringing to us through the the, the person of Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 5. He says, because of their faith, seeing their faith, Jesus turns and says, son, your sins are forgiven. But he didn't stop there. Verse 6 says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and they were reasoning in their hearts and they were saying, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning this way within themselves, he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and get your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. 
He said to the paralytic, he switches focus, now he's talking to the man. He says, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And there's, there's Mark's favorite word in verse 12. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the, in the sight of everyone. So they were all amazed. They were glorifying God and saying, we've never seen anything like this before. So we see the idea that, that, this, um, that Jesus is acting in that comforting, that, 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 pro, that, that priestly way. You know, it's interesting how when you look at this in the Bible in those days and that day and age is oftentimes sickness and suffering was often viewed in that culture as a result of sin. Now, we know in our day and age, because Jesus talks about this, that sin and, um, and, and, and sickness don't always go hand in hand. Sometimes it does. If you smoke cigarettes for 35 years and, you, and the doctor comes to you and says, you've got lung cancer, don't look at him being surprised. How did this happen? I never knew. Come on. We know now you're saying, Pastor, you're saying that smoking is sin? No, I'm not saying that smoking is a sin. What I'm saying is don't be surprised when one equals the other. Don't be surprised when you have a sinful life and you engage in sinful activities, then all of a sudden you come down with a rare disease that you can only get from such sinful activities. You, can't, you have to realize that both of them go hand in hand. But we also know that God is not inflicting punishment usually on people because of sin normally, but I'm not saying he can't or won't but it doesn't normally happen that way. And we see here the paralytic is there. We know that he is there because God is trying to do something powerful in him. And we know that the idea of the forgiveness of sin was a powerful thing. And anyone who has truly been forgiven knows what it means. I guarantee you that if you looked at that man who was lying there on the pallet, who was, who was just as crippled as the day is long, and he was looking up at Jesus, I guarantee you when Jesus said to him, and he knew and he believed it, and when he said, your sins are forgiven, I guarantee you the man started crying like a little baby because he knew that his sins were more important to be forgiven than his body to be healed i know he knows that but i know he's probably sitting there like every beggar who sits there looking for a little bit more from the king right he wanted something more and to be able to sit there and not only have your sins forgiven to be able to be in right standing with god to be able to stand into the house of of god and be able to worship and by the way because he was crippled and paralyzed there was no way that he was allowed in the temple okay he was not in right standing with God. We don't know how long this man was really paralyzed. I don't think it says that. Maybe it did and I missed it. But either way, we, we don't have the, all that knowledge. But we know that as long as he's been paralyzed and crippled, he has not been allowed into the presence of God. He can go only so far in the temple before they would stop him. Ladies, they let him go to the women's court. It's kind of sad to say the women and the paralyzed people can all worship in the same place, right? But the men can go a little closer. That just doesn't seem right. I don't know why. But either way, that's the way it was. He could only go just so far. And when God not only healed him of his sins and then healed his body, he allowed him to be part fully of the fellowship of God. And this is what God does to us. It allows us the ability to be able to stand in the presence of God, look at God himself, call him Father, to not worry about anything that's in the past because once he forgives us, we are forgiven indeed. It's a powerful thing. So what is, our, what is our, our, our application for this? The question I need to ask you is, how do you respond to the love of Jesus Christ when it's poured down upon you? How do you respond to his mercy and his grace? And when it happens to you, are you willing to then extend that mercy and that grace to people around you? Or do you hoard it like it's your own little commodity, right? Yeah. The last passage we're going to look at, I know some of you are looking at your clock, you're saying, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. 
Well, if you're, if you're smart and you're an avid First Baptist Church and Kenai goer, then you'll know that you, you plan to have your crockpot done by, at 1230, right? Because that's about the time we'll be done. So we're getting there. We're getting there. So chapter 1, chapter 1. So we are in chapter 1, Book of Mark, and we're going to look at verse 21. This is the final one. So we've seen the priest, the prophet role. We've seen the priestly role. Now we're getting to the final role, the role of Jesus as king. is the mighty man of, of, of valor, the one that's going to come in and save the day, the one they really wanted when they rode on that donkey with the giant sword and the armor that's, that's, that's indestructible that go before them and, and mounts up this, this huge campaign to take the enemy away, take the enemy's land. But that's not exactly what happened, we know. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum. And immediately, there's that favorite word of Mark's, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his teaching, he was teaching um, uh, to them, one having the authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, just as, as there was a man in their synagogue, just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, what business have we of with, with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? How have you come to destroy you? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said be quiet and come out of him and throwing him into convulsions the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him and they were amazed so they debated among themselves saying what is this a new teaching uh, uh, and, and with authority and he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him immediately there's that word again immediately the news went about him and spread everywhere to all the surrounding districts in Galilee we see that immediacy of scripture but we also see this story of this mighty king who says commands and they are answered that's a pretty powerful thing you know, I find it interesting, this whole story is really unique because it says in the village of Capernaum, which in those days and ages, that's actually the village of Nahum, which means the village of consolation. I know Phil, it mattered to you, right, to know this was the, another word for this village was the village of consolation. And Jesus is offering consolation there in the synagogue as he is teaching them, giving them the words of life. But he wasn't sitting there like me. When I quote people, I try to give them attribution, right? It's nice that when Tom gives me a, something that I say, well, Tom said this, right, rather than to stand up here and say, and take Tom's words and, and preach them as my own. That would not be appropriate. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't get up there and quote all the other scholars behind him. He simply stood there and taught them because he, he was the greatest scholar there was. He's the one that engaged and wrote the Bible. The word was actually who he was. And so being able to give this lesson from the man who, who originally conceived the concept of a Bible, let alone the words that are written there, is really powerful. He was giving them authority. And just as he was doing that, even the enemy, I find this amazing that the, the apostles and the people around him were hesitant to call him the Son of God, right? Hesitant to accept him as Messiah. But here is a demon who is invested into the body of a man who knew from the moment that Jesus showed up, this guy isn't here just to play around. This is the creator of the universe. This is the son of God. This is the guy that's going to cause problems. And you can hear the fear in their voices. Look what he says. Have you come to destroy us? Is this it? Is this the final days? Is this our last minute to be free of, 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 on the earth? What's going to happen? And look what they call him. They said the Holy One of God. That's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Look what Jesus says, be quiet. That same word, be quiet, was the same word he used on the wind a couple chapters later. He looked him in the eye and just said, shut up. Now, some of you guys have experienced power, powerful spiritual warfare. 
Some of you guys have experienced times where you've been able to see the power of God moving through you. I know Tom has been to Haiti several times. He'll be the first one to tell you that spiritual darkness there is bad. I lived over in Belgium for a number of years. Spiritual apathy and darkness is bad. One, I remember one season, and I've shared this story a couple times with you guys in the past. We had a mission team that was coming over, and they wanted to do something more than just VBS. And so we had planned for three years to try to go into um, the, 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 the central city that's around the area where I was, a city called Mons, and they had a train station. And we wanted to simply give out water and tracks and have a table full of Bibles, and if somebody wanted a Bible, we could give it to them. That was our goal, right, to be able to give it. We were told by the city that they were going to let us do it but we were not allowed to be a nuisance to anybody. We couldn't chase after anybody. So we couldn't hand them a bottle of water with a track on it and then follow after them and say, you need Jesus, and, and try to engage them. And that's kind of a weird thing to say because it's hard to prove that. So we had to be very cautious as we're there. The entire time we were there, we had, we had police officers with machine guns and dogs outside the train station watching us very closely. It was the weirdest situation we had. But that of itself wasn't the weirdest part. The weirdest part is we had a woman come up in French and started screaming and hollering and cursing at us in French. She eventually said that she was demon-possessed and that she was levying curses against all of our team. Now, only a few of us spoke French, and only a few of us spoke French well enough to understand what she was saying, and it really got them nervous and scared. And finally, this woman would come right up at me. I mean, she'd right in my face, you know, and yelling and screaming. But you see, we, we're, we're there. We're there, and we have to be cautious because we didn't want to ruin our spot. We didn't want to get arrested. We didn't want the police and the dogs to come chasing us down. So we couldn't engage in a way that we would want to. We didn't lay hands on her. We didn't. We, we just did. So I finally just said, when she comes back, I told my interpreter, I said, do not translate the words. Just pray. And so she came back and stood in her face. She's yelling curses. I'm getting spat upon. And she's, I mean, just that kind of anger that was there. And I just simply looked her in the eye and I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, be silent. And she shut up. The team was astounded. We're all sitting there. We're just praying. And I said, I'm now speaking to the woman. I'm not speaking to the demon that's holding her body. I said, I'm going to pray for you. And I began to pray for her, and she ran away from us. We continued to pray for her, and she kept coming back. Four times she came back up to us, three or four times. And every time she'd come up, she'd open her mouth to speak, and she was unable to say a word. So much so that she went back to where she was. She had found some paper and a pen, and she wrote a stick picture diagram of her life and gave it to one of our workers. And I was real nervous about receiving anything from a demon-possessed person because there's, there's some things there you just don't want to get involved with. And so my, the, the worker there, she said, Pastor, should I receive this? Should I accept it? I said, well, prayerfully accept it, but, but just be cautious because you don't know what that is. She opens it up, and it was, a, it was a, like, a, like a cartoon that was hand-drawn with stick figures. And the woman in cartoons showed us a picture of her life. And it started off with a, a nice, happy little family, a mom, a dad, a little kid in between. And then you see a, a mom and a little kid with sad and, the, and no father. And then you saw a mom and a little kid that's not standing next to mom being led away by another figure. And then you saw another picture of mom with tears and no kid. And then you just saw this dark block with nothing. And we knew this woman had suffered greatly. 
And we prayed even deeper for that woman. Now, she never came back again after we left. We never had an opportunity to reconnect, and I'm really sad about that. I wish, and I hope and pray that wherever that woman's at, that she's found someone that can minister to her in a language she understands in a way that she can receive true healing. But that day, we saw seven other people accept Christ as their Savior. We managed to hand out over, over 100 Bibles. We managed to put tracts in the hands of every single person that came off the stage, or came off the, the train, um, that wanted a bottle of water. We, we handed out, Sandy, we handed out like 500 bottles of water that day. Every bottle of water had a track on it. You know, we did what God wanted us to do. And we didn't let the enemy stop us. When I look at what Jesus Christ did here, I know firsthand what the power of the Holy Spirit can do in people that are willing to move forward. But here's the creator of the universe who laid down the law and said, this is what's going to happen and this is how it's going to be and you're going to listen to me and it's going to be no questions asked. And so the application we pull from this is, is how do we respond to the authority of God Almighty? Do we respond in worship? Do we respond with obedience? Do we respond in resisting a temptation? Or do we turn our eyes from his authority and we move to another direction? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. This is what we want to know. You know, if you look at these, the, these, these miracles that Jesus is doing, these ideas that he's trying to put forth, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond knowing that this is true? You know, I thought long and hard about this. This is Palm Sunday, right? This is the time that we're going to be moving closer to Easter Sunday when we have visitors that come out of the woodworks that have not been in church in years. This is the time that the gospel message needs to be solid and straightforward. And here is as solid and straightforward as we can get. Sin will keep you out of the presence of God. Period. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never had a moment to bow your will before him and say, Father, it's not about me. I'm going to obediently and willingly believe in faith, peace, peace, that you are truly the Son of God, that you died on the cross for my sins, you rose again because God said that you would, and as proof that you have overcome darkness, sin, and death, and you have a place prepared us in heaven because you told us you are going away to prepare said place. That is the faith we're talking about. If you have never done that, then I hate to tell you, you are not bound for heaven. And there's only two places you're going to go. There's heaven and there's hell. And I know some people will sit there all the time and they say to me, well, pastor, you just don't know. I'm just not ready. It's not there yet. Da, 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 da. You know, how would you feel if a doctor came to you tomorrow and said, I've got some good news and some bad news, Right? And then the next phrase out of his mouth is like, what do you want to hear first, right? That, and so most of us, I don't, you know, I thought about this in the shower this morning. I was thinking, I started to say, yeah, I do a lot of good thinking in the shower. It's, I don't know why it does. I just do. But um, so I was sitting there in the shower thinking, and I'm thinking to myself, well, most people want to know the good news first, but it occurs to me, maybe not everybody's an optimist. Maybe some of you guys want to hear the bad news first and hope that the good news will like cushion the fall that you, the, after the bad news is delivered. And I, so I, I realized I can't make that statement that everybody wants to know the good news first. So whichever person you are, a uh, uh, happy, optimistic, fun-loving person, or a grumpy, miserable, pessimistic uh, person, uh, yeah. anyway, <laughs> that's probably mean, isn't it? I don't want to do that. Anyway, so whichever way you are, this, this particular doctor doesn't go up and give you an option, right? He just comes up and says, I got some good news and some bad news, and here's the bad news. Bad news is you're dying of a particular type of rare cancer that only you have. It's not catchy. It's not spreadable. You probably won't feel really bad until about a week before you actually die. But at that time, it's going to be nasty. It's going to be horrible. And I know a lot of you are saying, well, as soon as you, I, you know, like, as soon as you said the word cancer, you're like, done. Like, I'm done. I'm done. 
right? And so you're sitting there, and you're like, all of a sudden, your whole countenance is falling, and you're like, what are you going to do? And then he says to you, but I've got the good news. And you're like, what can be better? What, what kind of good news is that, right? That I'm not like, like I only have two weeks left to live? Is that the good news? How can you have good news in a rare cancer that's going to make me feel horrible a week or two before I die, and then I'm just going to be gone, right? What, what good news can come? If the doctor said, the good news is we can completely cure it, right? The only thing is, to get this cure, you have to take it today. Now, what person says, Doc, I'm going to think about that for a month, right? Isn't that the silliest thing in the world? Who Nobody in their right mind would say, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to, let me give you some time to pray about it. I don't know if I should take that pill, right? Nobody would ever do that. But the reality of this is this. When, when I'm, st- I'm standing before you now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, your sinner, you're going to hell, period. Okay? I don't know when you're going to die. I don't know when Jesus is going to take you. And I'm not going to be one of those preachers that says, says to you, well, if you don't do it now, you may never get another chance, and you might die from a comet streaking from the sky 10 seconds after you step out of this building. Yes, that's completely possible. Is it probable? Not likely. But the point is, okay, we don't need to think about that. You don't need to worry about that. All you need to worry about is if you're not saved, you're not a Christian, he's standing right now saying, come, I have the cure. You want eternal life. You want happiness now. You want to be where I want, where you're right in my will. You want to move forward knowing that everything else is secure, that your family, everything is where it needs to be. If you want to know that right now, I have the cure for the, for the disease that's going to kill you. But you got to take it now. Now. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Now, I know some of you are sitting here saying, well, pastor, I've been a Christian for 45 years. You may be. I don't know. I really don't. There's only one person on the face of the earth that I can guarantee I know about their salvation. That's me. And I guarantee you there have been times in my life where I have, I have wandered in the woods in the darkness so dark and so deep that I wasn't sure if I was truly saved. And there have been times in my life where I knew I was saved, but I still couldn't understand why God was leading me through this, this time of darkness that was so dark and so deep that I couldn't even see straight. I can't answer all those questions. I can only speak for myself. I can say this, that every circumstance, every experience, every relationship, every friend, every enemy, every human being that's ever come into my life and then left, and left a mark for good or for ill, was put there to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. And so God brought you here this morning because he is shaping you and conforming you to the image of his son. And if you're coming here saying, Pastor, I've been a Christian for 45 years, my next question is, what are you doing for Jesus now? How are you responding to his power and his authority now? Or are you relying on what you did 25 years ago? We don't want to stand on past glories because it's not our glory, it's his that matters. And we want to carry the banner forward because let me tell you something, there is a darkness in this community that's growing. The governor is doing his thing. I know Phil's passionate about it, but I don't care about the governor. I don't care about the president. Well, I mean, I care enough to pray for him, but I don't care what their, their policies are because they don't ultimately affect me because I'm not basing my salvation as a citizen of the United States. I'm basing my salvation as a citizen of God Almighty's kingdom in heaven, which is far greater than anything here. And I know that no matter what happens out there, this is secure. 
But I guarantee you, as we see this state pulling back on their budgets, as we see this state doing things to, to, to try to make themselves solvent again, I don't even know how they can do that. I'm not a money guy. I'm telling you that things are going to change in our community. It's going to get darker before it gets lighter. And it's at times like this that the house of God, the people of God, the co covenant community of God needs to shine even brighter. And I'm telling you, for those of you that haven't done a darn thing for the gospel of Christ in the last 25 years, now is your chance. We have the greatest opportunity standing in front of us because when it's darkness for the people who have no hope, when we stand before them, it says, we have hope. You say, well, Pastor, what do I do? Here's what you do. You get your heart right, repent of your past, move forward with him, and get ready to be willing to obey him when he moves you. And when you find somebody that needs something, do what they need. If they need food, call Wyvon. And Wyvon's going to say, I'll make it up, you bring it to him, because it's your person, right? Because that's her job, is to, is to make sure you get what she needs. Maybe they're saying, maybe it's, maybe it's somebody that needs some mentoring or teaching, or maybe it's somebody that needs their car fixed. We've got people in the congregation that can do that. Eric, I won't ask you to stand up and tell me how many times I call you during the month about car stuff, but it's almost every other day. I've got broken cars, and I'm ministering to people with broken cars. There are skills in this congregation. You have to tap into it. The answer, the question I'm asking you today is, are you willing to do what God's calling you to do? Are you willing to be obedient no matter what he says? If it's salvation, so be it. If it's movement, so be it. If it's repentance, so be it. But whatever it is, get it right today because we don't want to go into the after Easter time unrepentant, unprepared, and unwilling. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, your word's been preached, and I just ask that the words that have been here today were not my own, Lord, but yours, and that you might convict us and move us and stand us up in front of you, that we be your imagers in this dark place. Father, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, Lord, I know that time is short and we want to move on, but we won't want to let anybody leave here today without giving them a chance to come to know you. Father, as the altar is open, we ask that anyone that needs to come down for any reason, that they will find solace and comfort and compassion and caringness at the foot of your cross at your altar this morning. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Mm.